So we're looking at Acts chapter 14 this morning, if you'll follow along with me. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man stirring, I'm sorry, sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch, and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered with the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Large sections in Scripture were 
we're getting into that place in Acts where it's difficult to break them apart because it truly is one, one storyline that runs throughout a, a large portion of Scripture. So we're taking some big chunks. And the thing is, this chapter speaks for itself and doesn't need all that much commentary, certainly not by me. I'm going to give some, but we're going to look at Paul's own commentary to the events of these experiences that he and Barnabas were having. He writes of them in a few of his letters. As he writes back to this region, he speaks of them uh, to Timothy. In fact, that's where I want to begin. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 and following. This is Paul speaking to his friend and mentee, disciple of Paul's, Timothy. Timothy grew up in Lystra. So as he speaks to Timothy of his life and experiences, Timothy knew firsthand what life was like in Lystra where Paul was doing ministry in Acts 14. He says to Timothy, you, however, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and get this in verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings. The ones that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions, persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. A powerful commentary. It really should direct how we respond to this chapter. I can summarize it, but then let's lean into Paul's words as he comments on it. The summary is what we've seen before. It's almost like, didn't we already have this story? Paul and Barnabas moving through the region, preaching first amongst Jews in the synagogue, being received and heard by some, creating a stir and indignation and agitation to others who come against them in persecution. So at the same time, they're experiencing joy, hope, and encouragement while also pain, suffering, and persecution. So we've heard this story before, haven't we? Similar to the early uh, church coming out of Acts 1.8, and now about a decade and a half or so later, it's happening again, and certainly this won't be the last time that we see this storyline Repeated. So let's lean into Paul's commentary. He doesn't get us stuck on the events. Certainly there's many questions we could ask and things we could discuss about the different events, lessons to be learned. But Paul points us toward endurance. He reminds us that persecution will come, evil will increase, but endurance is our call and the Lord's rescue is our hope. And he said the same thing in verse 21 of Acts 14. When they preached the gospel in that city, and they'd made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, and they said to them, they encouraged them, continue in the faith. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. With that as a backdrop, let's talk about endurance. Finishing well in the midst of pain or trial 
or hardship or suffering or even persecution. How often do we fail to finish what we begin? Maybe with the best intentions. And maybe it's as simple as a resolution or a diet or that yard project that still is evidence to all of our neighbors. Or the house. As an example, I, I, I've run out of bookmarks. I have a lot of bookmarks. Which means there's a lot of things on my shelf that are unfinished. And we seem to live in a culture that over-promises and under-delivers. Which means we're somewhat okay with being a people who make vows and don't fulfill them. And certainly, some things are weightier than others. Some things are merely intentions, best efforts. Some things simply require consistency to finish. But others are vows, and others require endurance to finish well. Things like our marriage, or parenting, our careers, and probably above all, our faith. How do we finish well? How do we, to quote the author of Hebrews, run with perseverance the race marked out for us? How do we, to quote Paul in his letter to the Philippian church, Press on and not lose heart. Will we hear Jesus say to us on our final day, well done, good and faithful servant. Because one thing is for certain, finishing well requires endurance if we live long enough. So should we just get the bad news out of the way? Some of you would say, well, can't we just avoid it altogether? And I would say, yeah, there are uh, churches today that are absolutely full because the gospel they preach is the message that they want to hear. Seven simple steps to make everything better. Three things we can all do to help save the world. Slight exaggerations, perhaps. But what's not an exaggeration is the hollowness of those messages. Or perhaps worse, the oppression of them. They're false gospels, and we know it. Everything that our eyes see and that our hearts feel betray those messages. Be assured of this. The world is not getting better. Cities are not getting safer. Your life is not meant to get easier or more comfortable. And you already know it. Paul reminds us, as he reminded Timothy, evil is growing from bad to worse. That's what the gospel reminds us of. And the gospel is good news, and it is so good because of the bad news. Because light shines most brightly in the darkness. So hang in there. Not just for this sermon, but life in general. You may need more of God's endurance for the next few moments. But there is good, if not great, news. And the reality is the world is under a curse. It's broken and slowly unraveling. It's full of pain and suffering and persecution. And you know it is true. And so we really have two options. We can try to escape 
that reality, or we can endure it. One option is a lot easier, though it focuses totally on ourselves. But we see this in our own lives as well as in the world around us, this desire to escape the reality of the pain and suffering and difficulty that we face and see in the world. Whatever it takes to ignore it, we may work harder, we may play harder, we may buy more stuff, and when that cycle doesn't ultimately help us escape the reality, then we may try to simply numb ourselves from the reality. We can eat more, drink more, take more pills, watch more movies, or more sports, or porn. We can play more games. Anything and everything, that list could go on and on, to numb ourselves from that reality. That's an escape. And none of which are good options, and we know that is true. And yet, if the alternative is what we fear, that we must endure through suffering and through pain, then no thanks. No thanks. Back to figuring out a way to escape or to numb that reality. And so nothing has really changed. Nothing is new. 2,000 years ago, these two men who had given up everything to follow the call of God to preach a message of hope and healing, of grace and mercy, of love, redemption, freedom, peace, they're persecuted. They're rejected. They're slandered. They're beaten. God himself has called them. He is with them through the power of the Spirit. He certainly could have rescued them, delivered them, protected them from any and all of those things, and yet he didn't. They face the reality of a broken, evil world. Nothing's changed. By even the most conservative measures, there are more Christians, Christ followers, persecuted today, in fact, giving up their life, than really any time in the last 2,000 years. More in the last 100 years than the previous 1900 combined. Those are conservative estimates. One, it gives testimony to the advancement and expansion of God's kingdom. Praise God for that. There are more believers to be persecuted. But sometimes we are isolated from that reality. And we forget the reality. But nothing truly has changed. Governments are still corrupt. Because evil men are still striving for power and position and control. And will do anything or say anything to remove anyone or anything that seems to be in their way. And we just heard a report of Zimbabwe, and if you're following that storyline at all, that's just one government of many. Nothing has really changed. But how do we bring it home into Redmond? Do we truly face persecution, endure suffering? Is that, is that our call, or is it, is it an out there, over there, If we will go, then we will be persecuted, reality. No. We can probably arrogantly say, my circumstances are just as hard. We can probably ignorantly say, my faith in Jesus is what's keeping me from persecution and suffering. And so what's the reality? It's somewhere in the middle. We need to grow in the grace of the gospel. That was last week's sermon. won't re-preach it. Well, parts of it I will. 
We must grow in godly perspective. We must see as God sees in order to begin to answer that big why question. To quote my good friend, and I think yours, Dan Gregory, who was here last month preaching. He said in a conversation we had prior that week, he said, I feel like my whole job is standing up in front of people who are staring at me, asking me to answer the question, if God is so good, why is life so sucky? And it just stuck with me, partly because of Dan's passion and also because of his use of words. But is it not the question that if we don't voice it and don't use those words necessarily, we may use other expressions or other angst within us? We need to grow in godly perspective to begin to answer that why. To begin to answer the why would you call if this is what you were asking us to endure? Why wouldn't you intervene and protect? If you're so good, where are you, Lord? Similar kinds of questions. Let's be reminded of a few things. One, our persecution and our suffering is not to be measured against. It's not to match the persecution or suffering of others, whether Paul or Barnabas or others in our world. That's not our measuring stick. It's against the call of Jesus to the daily cross. When Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross daily. That word daily, I think Luke is maybe the only one that includes it. It's clear that he's not speaking of a physical cross to be crucified upon. That was his call. So what was he saying to his followers? Daily, your cross to bear, your burden is different, but it will require all of you. You must give all of yourself to it. It will require pain, endurance, and, and suffering. So Jesus says this, and he said many times a phrase similar to this, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I think that quote was from John 15, 20. And remember Paul's words to Timothy. Really, I should have said earlier, these were some of Paul's final written words that we have before his own death. So at the end of his life, he is still summarizing the reality of the gospel in this way. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So what is Jesus calling you to? What is he asking of you? He doesn't call everyone to sell everything they have, give to the poor, and move to Zimbabwe. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, certainly he called many to leave homes to leave families for a time, to leave their careers. He reminded them of the cost of what that would be. But there's only one example where he said directly to a man, sell everything that you own and give to the poor, then come follow me. One time. Because he knew that man's heart and he knew where his treasure truly was. Now he may be saying that to some of us. But our call is different than the person sitting next to us. 
What is he calling us? What will persecution or endurance look like in your life? What will suffering be? Remember that most of the believers in Antioch, the first greenhouse church, which we took a few weeks studying because they're such a powerful example for us of what it means to live on mission, to sacrifice, to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. But remember that most in that church were called to stay. They were called to engage in the mission by sending Paul and Barnabas, by praying for them faithfully, by giving generously, and by enduring right where they were. That's why we reminded you again this morning of our call to be like that greenhouse church. Your call may be to stay put. Maybe God has you right where he wants you in this season. So if he's called most of us to stay put, he's asking us to see with his eyes, godly perspective, to see the fields that are white for the harvest. Beginning immediately in our context, the fields were already planted on. And I'll keep preaching that message. But moving beyond to the region and even to the ends of the earth, to see with his eyes, to be on mission right where he's planted, and to consider the ways that we're already facing persecution and suffering and what endurance in the power of Christ looks like right where we're planted. Not measured against others and what they are being asked to endure, but against the daily call of the cross. To be sure, it's a powerful testimony to do what Paul and Barney did. To walk into yet another synagogue after being driven out of the last one, to preach the same message, knowing that it might lead to their arrest or their persecution once again. Now, if they knew that this time it was going to lead to their stoning, maybe they would have hesitated. But they'd already made a commitment to go and to preach the gospel against all odds. And if the one who has called them to that is faithful, then he may have the glory however their life turns out. It's a powerful testimony to go in the face of potential opposition and even personal pain. Stoning was not meant just to hurt. It was meant to kill. You were left for dead. And that's what they experienced at this time. It was also a powerful testimony after they fled these places, to go back to them. Did you notice that? We kind of just, I think, gloss over that. In fact, if you look, look at a map, there were much quicker ways to get back to Antioch. They took the long route, the hard route, up and over mountain passes to get back to the very same cities that they had left weeks or months earlier to continue to encourage the believers and preach the gospel, knowing what was probably waiting for them there. That's a powerful testimony. Some are called to this. And if so, they will be given the strength that they need to endure. Okay, hear me, church. It is also a powerful testimony to proclaim that God is good, that He is enough when life is falling apart. 
when loss is your reality. It is also a powerful testimony to have peace in the midst of a storm. It is also a powerful testimony to live with joy, not necessarily happiness, but joy when pain and grief is your daily reality. It is also a powerful testimony to live with hope when there's no chance that your life is going to get better or easier. Some are called to this, and they will be given the strength they need to endure. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And I've said often, I've asked the question first to myself, and I ask it to you, do we have that kind of hope that is even noticeable? I'd say true hope is hardly noticeable unless our circumstances are desperate or dire. That's when hope starts to shine. Maybe this helps us begin to answer the why question, the why pain, the why suffering. Why doesn't God intervene and rescue? Why, if God is so good, is life so sucky? The world has fallen and falling apart. Pain and persecution and suffering remind us of our desperate need for a Savior, a Rescuer, and a Healer. And that is enough. That is enough. Lest we forget our desperate need for one who is beyond and greater than this world and not only has rescued and will rescue, but is Rescuing, lest we forget by being removed from all pain, being numbed from all suffering, or escaping all persecution. And yet it goes deeper. That is enough. If pain and suffering and persecution brings us to that point, that daily Reality that we cry out to a savior and a healer and a rescuer, it goes deeper even. We might actually be growing and strengthening in our faith because of those very things. If it is not, is it not true that our muscles grow and strengthen only through being under? Tension, resistance, and stress. That is the only way they grow and strengthen. Now, hopefully there's a time of rest following those times of tension and stress and resistance. That's what workouts do. Is it possible that we have that very same picture in our spiritual lives, in our faith, that without that resistance, without stress, without trial and tension, we will not truly grow spiritually the way Jesus wants us to grow. And I would say we also have a Redeemer that will take 
any and all things and would use them for our good, that would take out of pain and out of suffering and out of brokenness and make something beautiful, would redeem it, would use, use every bit of that, would not waste any of it, that you can preach a message of hope, of joy, of healing, of peace, that would actually be astonishing only because of what you have walked through and endured. The second, I think, key passage that is Paul's commentary on probably not just these events, but his other missionary travels as well that we'll come to in Acts as we progress forward. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and following into the first part of chapter 5. Hear this now with the lens of what he and Barnabas had endured as he's writing back to a church that later would be planted. But as that storyline of persecution and suffering and pain would continue for Paul, hear this, and I hope receive it into your own context. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and following. We are afflicted in every way, Paul said, but not crushed. Perplexed? They too, asking the same questions. Why, Lord? Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We are not alone. Struck down. How could he not be thinking of that time where they were stoned? Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. How could he even have described it that way? In comparison, maybe some of what we're going through is light and momentary. And it feels heavy and lengthy. (laughs) But again, he describes it as a light, momentary affliction. And it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And into chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, this body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This world is not our home. These bodies are not eternal. The one that is waiting for us is. With godly perspective, we have that hope. Paul said to the Philippian church, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Some of you, that's been your prayer and desire for a long time now. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul said, that is, that is better for me by far. This world has nothing left for me. But, 
he said, for your sake I will remain. I endure. The time is short. It is fleeting. It is transient. And that's true for every one of us. The opportunities to preach the gospel message of hope and joy and peace are going to come to an end suddenly. And whether you have months or years or decades left, which none of us knows, the time is short. The opportunities to endure will come to an end. Praise God. But we only have this opportunity to worship our God in this way. It will be no more for eternity. When all pain and suffering is removed, when we finally see and experience the finished work of Jesus on the cross, as our, that will be our daily reality. And there will be a moment, and I don't know how long into eternity, and that's probably just speaking of it at such a low level, that we'll all chuckle back on these words. I don't know at what point into eternity will we actually realize and look back And I don't think with regret, because that's probably the wrong emotion for heaven, but with this thought of, was it really that hard? (laughs) It was so short. Why was it such a struggle? Paul and Barnabas were called to endure persecution and prison, slander, and even stoning, and to get back up again. They were not called to endure cancer, or Crohn's, or chronic arthritis, or Parkinson's, or the loss of a child, or to be a caregiver for a sick parent, or sibling, or child. Again, this is not measuring, but it is relating to the very same call of Christ expressed and lived out in different circumstances. The call to preach a gospel of hope, joy, healing, grace, mercy, and freedom in the midst of a world that is broken, that is unraveling, in the midst of bodies that are full of pain, minds that are not as sharp. To say God is good. He is enough. He has not left us nor forsaken us. And even if with my earthly eyes and this earthly heart, Do I not see him fully and experiencing him completely? What I have heard of him and know of him is enough. And may my life glorify him. Even if it's like a little candle flickering in the darkness. Paul said, this is the third commentary back on his journey 
In Philippians 4, verse 13, I bet you know this one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think we've put that on enough bumper stickers and coffee mugs and other places, but we better understand the context. Paul wasn't speaking about trying to get a promotion at work or winning the championship game or trying to lose that final 10 pounds. Paul was talking about suffering, about loss, about persecution, about grieving. Rewind a few verses to verse 11. I have learned, Paul said, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There are seasons in life, aren't there? Abundance and need. Plenty and hunger. Peaks and valleys. We've lived long enough, we know it to be true. If we're smart, we're learning it. If we're wise, we're learning it from others. And even in this body, in this gathering, as I look out and know many of your stories, some better than others, I know that's true. I know you know it's true. And so what is the secret, Paul said? The secret of being content. And with that contentedness, proclaiming God is good. He is true. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ in me. He's gone before us in every way. Jesus has shown us how to perfectly endure suffering. Worse suffering than we'll ever face. Again, not to compare, but he knows. He relates. As he faced his own slander and rejection, false accusations, his own beating and flogging, crucifixion, but above all, the wrath of God poured out on him. And he endured faithfully. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, verse 20, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Escaping persecution or pain is all about us. Enduring is all about Jesus. And Jesus actually does more than go ahead of us as an example. He lives in us as our strength. He is in us in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not our strength, it is His. I can do all things, That's a mantra our world says. I can do all things. I can do all things. You can do all things. Just work harder. Pull up those bootstraps. And that message ultimately crushes us, doesn't it? The message of the gospel is Christ in you is enough. 
It's his strength through you that is the testimony. And Jesus said in John 16, the night before he was crucified, when he was going to leave them for a time and then not too much longer leave them for good on earth, he was telling them, you're not alone. You will not be alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you, in you, and to be your comforter. He said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, for in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It is done. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He has already borne our burdens. He's nailed them to the cross. That's where they are now and forever. As we come to the table this morning, as you come and receive, I also want you to come and leave. Come to the table and leave your anxiety and your fear. I can't promise you that you can just leave your pain and suffering. Though Christ is your healer and your healing has been accomplished, you can leave your anxiety and your fear over it. That's his promise. Cast all your anxiety upon him. That piece of bread represents his body on the cross that was broken. It took all pain, all sin, and death and was broken. All of it for you and me. It is done. And that cup represents life, forgiveness, healing. So as you come and receive, come and leave also. I'll invite the team to come up to help lead us in response. Weighty things, I know. Heavy things, but I believe they lead to hope and to healing as we engage the reality of the gospel. It is so good because we see what is so bad both in our world and in our own lives. Jesus, you are our rescuer, our deliverer, our healer. It is already done. Be our living strength and hope today for whatever you are asking us to endure. We are but jars of clay. Redeem us and use us as vessels of light in a dark and broken world for your glory and for our joy. Amen. I believe we have four songs today to rest in that place, at least. We pray that these are both songs of praise and declarations of His promise. May that be so. That's why we sing or speak aloud these words. Powerful. And as you come to the table to receive, also leave their anxiety, fear. Thank Jesus that the healing is accomplished in all things. Earlier, I don't think I said this, earlier in Philippians 4, and Paul reminded them, do not be anxious about anything. Easy for you to say. 
But in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is our promise. So make these songs, those prayers, with thanksgiving, and receive the peace that is His promise to you today.